calculations, our priorities, our awarenesses and involvements also and equally with regard to others reflect our interest in their intentions, their actions and their results whether or not they appear to affect us. With such <coughs> an emphasis in life of self and other selves, it's not surprising that we then begin to perceive and construe the nature of life exclusively and therefore narrowly in those terms, to the point that that becomes for us the truth of life, the perceived uh, reality of things, and sometimes it's only in suffering or only in a sudden awareness or a change of heart or some impact on I and my that seems to bring out of us a deeper kind of question, awareness or experience which affects the interpretation of life which is that truth is concerned with intention, actions and results. <coughs> we recognize from a standpoint of awareness and uh, wisdom how valuable and necessary it is to look into that process to see what is the relationship to results is there dependency and attachment there? Is there identification there? How do we respond to the apparent effect of circumstances of life upon ourselves and others? What does that spark and trigger? So in looking into the sequence of things, as we perceive, remember always as we perceive, then results in life have come to matter to us. Sometimes, for us, they have come to matter more than anything else. Therefore we ask ourselves meditatively, in serious and focused reflection, is the most important thing of life the results of activities? Is that the most important thing of life? And such questioning and such willingness to raise uh, such a, a question may go against the pattern, the conditioning, the belief systems, the view that one has cherished throughout one's existence and actively threaten one's foundation of one's beliefs. Are results the most important thing of life? When a person begins to uh, question this, whether one is thinking of results in personal, social, economic, spiritual, physical terms, when a person begins to question, it can trigger all manner of uh, uncertainties for some people, in which in the impact upon one's consciousness it's as though, and this we were hearing yesterday from one or two people in the inquiry period, that the old is not really the heart of the matter. Being successful, socially, spiritually or whatever. And 
in the impact of the questioning of results, one may be in a difficult uh, struggle with oneself because one has hinged one's existence, one's self, on the, on the results of circumstances. And one says, well, what then? My whole way of thinking, my whole way of believing, the whole structure of my existence is tied around being successful, either for myself, or for others, or for both. And if I stop this preoccupation, if I let myself uh, let it go, if I don't pursue my aims, what will happen? And in that uncertainty, in that not knowing what comes next, struggle may ensue. And thus, not unusual in spiritual life and awareness, that the old is no longer acceptable, one doesn't know what the new is, or will be, and if there ever will be something new, and one's faced with what actually is happening today, this day in one's life, this week in one's life, this year in one's life, this decade in one's life, does one have the metal to live with such unknown circumstances? In our relationship to living, to, uh, to making uh, changes uh, in our life, the number, there are a number of areas which at times we prioritize. At times we have thoughts about and we somehow sometimes imagine that the thoughts about are some indicator of the movement for change. So, um, uh, repeat that, since for some it might be early in the morning. <laughs> that sometimes the thoughts about give us the idea, give us the deception in fact, because I'm thinking about, I'm interested in change. <laughs> Doesn't mean anything. We can think about one's whole existence about making uh, changes. One can persuade oneself or other people as well that one genuinely is interested in change which is beneficial for oneself or for others. And the thoughts about can reproduce with um, tremendous ferocity and still it seems that thoughts reproduce with tremendous ferocity, which reproduce with tremendous ferocity, and it goes on. And so one asks oneself, if I'm interested in change, is there a difference in life between thoughts and awareness? Because it seems like the thoughts reflect or reveal an awareness, and I would say, I would insist in fact, that they don't necessarily so. Just as one is sitting in meditation and one is giving awareness to breathing or to body or to the here and now, and then one gets into one's <coughs> um, personal storyline or into some other human being's uh, personal uh, story line because one's own so tedious. 
And in whoever storyline that one is uh, in, and it's rather an odd thing that one is so much more able to tell others the changes that they ought to make in their life than one ought to be making in one's own life. This is called being a spiritual teacher. <laughs> there are exceptions. <laughs> so sometimes, <laughs> if we can't uh, have humour about ourselves, we shouldn't be in this work. So sometimes we have a lot of thoughts about ourselves. And in the meditation, the thoughts arise, God, I'm you know, thinking so much. I'm really uh, dwelling too much on this. I'm really getting caught up in this particular storyline or whatever. And, and there's a kind of sense or a notion in that particular thought that therefore I'm aware of what's going on. Because I've had a few thoughts about it. I'm thinking about my storyline. I know I'm thinking about my storyline. But the thinking which goes on about the thinking is part of the storyline. And that those who say, yes, I wish to live with awareness in life, which is another nice thought, and um, wish to meditate, or I wish to be here and now, and all the ways that we may uh, speak in uh, spiritual circles, actually becomes something which is digested into the story of one's life. And thus one has added a new stream of thoughts which I say enter into the thinking. So it's not at all unusual that one going into a storyline, let's take meditation, going into a storyline about something, thoughts arise, oh I must get back to the breath, oh I must be here and now, I must be more aware. doesn't make a scrap of difference. And then come the end of the sitting period, one um, hears the uh, uh, gong and if it's loud enough and long enough it might shake one out of one's storyline. Oh, God, I spent the whole period sitting and thinking, which included Dharma thoughts, spiritual thoughts. Oh, I should be here and now. I use it as an illustration of the distinction between thinking and awareness. If one, in meditation or in any circumstance of one's life, sees the unsatisfactoriness of something and that seeing brings the change, in this case meditation, the storyline stops in that moment, it ceases, one really does register well with the life, with the living present. If it ceases, one says that is awareness. The awareness is the action of change. And therefore there is a distinction between thinking about and awareness because awareness brings, in spiritual language, awareness brings its own action its own outflow, naturally. And therefore, I say yesterday and again to today, that thought may reflect this awareness. It may reflect it, but there's no assurance that it does. And thus one can have many 
ideal thoughts about life, about what should be, about the changes which are ne needed to be made. And it doesn't bring the action. If that is the nature of thought in life, then thought, since it's, as it were, words in consciousness, it may also have some relationship to the massive outpouring in our life of information. And you and I are daily subjected, if not abused, by the, com the compelling interest sometimes in news which pours into our consciousness. <laughs> and with that, when we speak of making changes, we will often say to ourselves, or to us, something should be done. This is a wonderful one-liner, something should be done. And, but don't look at me, whoever it is. Why not look at me? Why? Because my life is completely trapped in self, of desire, action and result, in a small circle. So we avoid it and we say something should be done. And we feel that if we are not informed, this is not accumulating knowledge and information from those uh, appalling magazines like Time and Newsweek and other distractions of existence, that if one feels if one isn't actually accumulating the information, one isn't informed. But one could easily ask oneself, if one is accumulating information and the end result of it is just thinking about, just complaining, just um, moaning or speaking uh, time to time about the problems of the world, then one could easily ask and wonder, is it that all this information in fact is crippling consciousness? In fact, I'm not aware of the situation, I just have thoughts about it. I just say a few words when there's the latest drama on this earth which is being highlighted and featured in the national uh, media and I think I'm aware of what's going on. And I would say the same again. Having information, having knowledge um, in the peripheral way that it occurs, outer mind as the Buddha said, doesn't mean anything. Doesn't mean that one knows anything about what's going on. Doesn't mean to say that there is any awareness, because to say if there is awareness of situation, awareness runs into the inner heart, inner mind, and there is some outflow of that in life. So at times one has to and comes to the ra rather basic understanding in life. If I really want to know what is going on in this, in this world, I intentionally cut the information flow. I do the opposite to what I've been told, to what I've been persuaded to believe. I, I starve, which, and this is the, one of the great renunciations of our culture, I, st I starve the mind of the absorption of information because I can sense and know it will only lead to, the, to more and more thinking about and more and more thinking about won't trigger the awareness. It will be more and more thinking about, more and more thinking about. 
So when you and I are speaking in contemporary language of letting go, contemporary language of um, information uh, and of thoughts, that, that becomes a, an act of spiritual renunciation. So that when I do receive information, including like what I'm speaking this morning, one could see it in kind of spiritual teaching, spiritual information, that hopefully the impact of it will run deep enough within oneself to contribute to awakening. Contribute to looking at the way that we have become information consumerists in this case. It isn't working. The effect, I think a very common effect of our society of, of being overwhelmed with thought and information is it shows itself in cynicism, apathy, uh, despair, a uh, sense of helplessness, uh, a lack of confidence, uh, a lack of uh, genuine deep uh, self-worth, uh, the mantra of, oh, what can you do, these problems are so big and I am so small, it, it has a is, is having a crippling impact upon humanity. And, and I say to all of this, where is the life and the spirit from us going to come from? clearly isn't coming from the channels which are being directed to us day in and day out. And therefore the whole relationship to information coming to us needs a thorough, I feel, and radical re-examination and that may include the deliberate and purposeful intention here to be very aware of what we absorb so that something can be enlivened or awakened with us, within us, as a community and as in individuals, to bring about an action. Just recently, I was, um, I've been uh, talking about uh, information and uh, reading. I'm, uh, like pr probably a, a number of, of you here, have uh, a genuine love for uh, poetry. And one of the interesting things with the way we treat poetry as an example uh, in our West, one often analyzes it, which is of course the fastest way for its destruction. And some of us uh, who uh, um, uh, brought up with your poor cousins in uh, England um, were subject to this in our schools. And as a result for myself in this case and others, were for years and years put off f um, with regard to poetry simply because of the way the information about poetry was given to us. Having to re remember a whole poem and then recite it in front of the class the next day, one hated the remembering. And I, I used to honestly believe in my uh, teens at school um, that poets were essentially um, sick people. <laughs> who wanted to make um, uh, teenagers' lives as miserable as possible <laughs> through having to analyze and di di dissect their work. <laughs> and so sometimes there which comes to us, the relationship and what occurs and the outflow of it has a very damaging impact for years uh, for some people. 
things, time changes. Recently, I, I've been reading about some of the, the, the poets of the 30s. There's like a generation of quite remarkable, I regard, remarkable poets of the 30s. And uh, um, Yeats, Spender, uh, Eliot, and company. And I read of one poet, the story rather touched me and I find it rather um, profound, who during the rise of um, the period of Mussolini in the early 19, 1930s and the whole horrible shadow of uh, fascism, just felt that he had to do something. And he was uh, an amateur uh, pilot. And what he, what he did was in 1932, a, a young Italian poet, he took a plane and he loaded onto the plane, a small plane, hundreds and hundreds of leaflets with the intention of flying over Rome and dropping these leaflets over the headquarters of Mussolini over the uh, Mussolini had once said rather a famous statement in Italy we we the fascists we're going to turn the Mediterranean into a Mediter into an Italian lake I mean this thinking and this young poet flew off and never heard of again presumably either crashed or shot down before when he flew off he left a note and he said in this uh, note, he said, the forces of Europe and Yeats in, in the Second Coming and other and uh, in the wastelands of uh, T.S. Eliot, he uh, summarised this in profound ways. He said, the forces of Europe, of fascism in this case, are so great, all that I can do as one individual is make one gesture. He said, it m will probably cost me my life. He said, like anybody else, I don't want to die. But it will be a small thing to die to make this one gesture against the forces which are so big. And one can say of all this, well, it's a romantic idealism, it's an extraordinary David and Goliath uh, situation. But to me, in, in all of that, the impassioned heart and the impassioned mind of taking that small uh, plane full up with leaflets with the intention of registering a non-violent uh, protest of one individual against the shadow of fascism. And I think these situations like, like that, I think it brings us back to ourselves as people together and as individuals and what awareness means in making changes, inner or outer, as distinct from streams of thinkings and talking about. And I think that story in some way, in extremely dramatic terms, in a way represents or personifies something about the power of a, a human being. In our um, looking at uh, change which uh, we wish to invite and encourage. 
we may say, because of the fields in which we have our focus and our interest, whether self or, or other, is that generally speaking we target something in some way or other and we dwell upon a particular situation or object and it has to matter for us. And one might ask oneself, and you may ask yourself today, you know, in coming here today and spending, for us to spend some hours here, what do I dwell upon? And what is precisely, for myself, whoever the I is, what is the change that I wish to see happen? And in that, I may, it, what I'm actually focusing on may be such that the focusing on, I want to bring something to effect that change. And is it in the realm of possibility? If it's in the realm of possibility, then I will need to be receptive to what those possibilities are. Sometimes the changes which one is wishing to induce does require a certain kind of cooperation. <coughs> what is the possibility of that cooperation? My danger in my thinking and in my believing tends to be working in one or two ways. Either I say well, it's up to me. I'm dwelling on something, I want to bring some change, and I say it's up to me. The reinforcement of the I, of the self, the power we imagine lies in myself. It's up to me. I have to do it, nobody can do it for me. It's a very common currency in the world of psychotherapy, in the world of spirituality. The other view, sometimes equally expressed, is, it isn't up to me. It's in the hands of another human being or other human beings. I apply for study, I apply for a job, I, I uh, want to be in a relationship, I, whatever it might be. And it isn't, it isn't up to me. I can show interest, I can put forward who I am in whatever way that I might do that, but actually the decision and the possibility for something to occur arises with other. When we believe in making changes and there is prejudice in the mind, it's all up to me or it's up to other, it is misperception. Misplaced wisdom, not wisdom, misplaced uh, thought, misplaced idea misplaced belief system. When we have this misplaced belief system, it's up to me or it's up to other, I don't care how much you think one or the other is true, then what follows on from it is normally praise and blame. Has to. If I think it's up to me and I get what I go, I really feel good about myself. One doesn't like go around slapping oneself on the back. A few people do. They, they get bruised for it. And 
or one's view is that it really relies upon other, one would give praise to other. What extraordinary, wonderful person he, she is, what he, she have done for me, or whatever. And praise goes one way, our praise goes the other. When things are not going as one anticipated, then the blame comes. And one blames oneself and all the trouble that it causes, but one blames other, another or others as well. Why? The belief system, the rigidity of it, is in self and other as being the cause of the situation. We love these beliefs. We're conditioned pleasurably and painfully both into them. Is it the truth? <coughs> Is the true nature of things self or other or both? And the praise and the blame that accompanies it. What would it be to radicalize, to, to, to bring an awareness in which one says, I'm not going to say what happens to my life is because of me. And I'm not going to say what happens to my life is because of other. I'm going to explore and look and see, yes, that's the way I imagine, that's the way I think, that's the way I believe. doesn't make it the truth. What would be another way of looking completely differently? What, in more impersonal terms, but with some wisdom and kindness in it, in the spiritual language, Buddha Dharma language, is called, sounds rather technical, dependent arising. The dependent arising of circumstances, the dependent arising of events, the dependent arising of uh, experiences. Sometimes when we're looking at uh, making changes as well, we say, in our everyday conception. I wish to make some changes in my life. I may say, I wish to make some changes to, to bodily life. And there are many considerations around that. Diet, exercise, uh, posture, usage uh, of the, the body, etc. Many very valuable uh, considerations and awarenesses in life. In, I must say, with regard to diet, posture and exercise, um, please don't look in the Buddhist tradition for any of these, um, particularly in the Eastern uh, Buddhist tradition. That frankly, uh, with, except with few exceptions, they haven't got a clue. And, and if I may, having spent ten years in the East, six years of them as a Buddhist monk, I speak with a little uh, experience and authority there. And there are far healthier and more conscious traditions um, to look. Both our contemporary uh, society, of course, Hindu tradition and its emphasis on uh, uh, not eating animals, birds and fish, on uh, yoga as spiritual practices, and other traditions as well. But for the most part, um, um, Buddhism, for all of its talk of awareness of body, it is pathetic. Ethically, <laughs> uh, minimal uh, in it. One only has to look at uh, at, at, at these um, unhealthy monks 
rolling around on the earth while on their feet. <laughs> so that, that doesn't give much in the way of inspiration. <laughs> so in terms of bodily... Uh, uh, <laughs> In terms of, um, I, I also tell them directly, um, they're they, they, uh, used to me. Um, <laughs> and so in terms of bodily awareness, uh, a very important feature for change, as I mentioned before, that it can be lots of thoughts about. doesn't mean anything. The awareness is the action. It is the activity. Similarly with our um, feeling life, with our um, emotional life. And with the experiences of emotional life, at times maybe ups and downs and comfortable and uncomfortable uh, feelings, sometimes <coughs> we've made an awful uh, um, perception, misperception again. We think we can have, to uh, use the vernacular, our cake and eat it. And in other words, um, we want to go on living in the same old way, doing the same old things, and be happy and we think we can be very, very happy and be selfish, greedy, egotistical, conceited, pursuing, full of desire, having everything and be happy. <laughs> and this emotional materialism is a, a contemporary uh, affliction. It's a serious virus. And in our relationship to that, emotional life and feeling life is not in, doesn't have any independent self-existence. Again, uh, a technical term, doesn't have an independent self-existence. Emotional life is related to the circumstances of life, cannot be divorced from them. So if one wishes for, to discover what happiness is uh, in this world, it's not just addressing and looking at one's emotions, it's looking at the totality of one's life in the fullness of things because emotions and feelings fit into that. Sometimes, very appropriate and very necessary, of course, to look at the past, to look at the contributing factors to one's emotions. But if one exaggerates the influence of the past too much, it will inhibit and slow down the wonderful healing power of the present, of the here and now, the wonderful healing power of the nature, the wonderful healing power of kindness and goodness and connectedness, which is the most, I would say, powerful force for the full recovery and the full expanse of a human being, and has, to me, much more authority to it than excessive dwelling on the past. And some people, in making and wishing for change in feeling and emotional life, as I say, do get benefits and do learn from the past, of course. But there has to be an accompanying attitude for change and transformation here that one genuinely wishes to learn from those experiences. Otherwise, we use the emotion to cast and put blame. Poor old parents. I mean, Freud has hardly been the embodiment of compassion towards parents <laughs> because the tendency to view too much, too simplistically I feel, in terms of the past as being the cause for my problems. And in looking exclusively in that way, it's not easy to look at the past 
and feel calm, comfortable and clear in the perception of the past. And so very easily past and the perception of it work together and the perception of it is fed by the memory of the past. And we think we're looking at the past clearly. <laughs> we're looking at the past in, through the past. So our relationship to time and our relationship to past is such that it is important, but it's not through thinking about, it's not through talking about, it's not through dwelling on, though that may contribute. The awareness of uh, change is through the awareness which we see the change is, is happening. Mm. And therefore sometimes we have invested too much in going into the past as the key and the only solution to the resolution of the present. Too, 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 too optimistic, too narrow a view. And I say here and now, healing power to it. Here and now, nature, tremendous potential in our awarenesses, in our receptivity, yet acknowledging at times, for periods, it might be, oh this is very qualified I know, useful to <laughs> explore and look into the past. But to be watchful of the dependency of thinking from the old will come the resolution to today. For some, yes, and for some you know your past very well, very intimately, and it hasn't brought a liberating awakening. So again, got everything re-valued, re-looked at, not being shy, no matter what the authority figures, past or present, here or elsewhere, say to you. Similarly, with information I spoke about, thought and knowledge. And also then finally, just for, uh, just like to make a little comment with regard to spiritual life. Spiritual life can be looked at, can be um, explained, uh, referred to in uh, different ways. I think, I think the possibility is that um, if we um, keep on in life talking about spirituality, eventually this uh, concept will become redundant, which would be rather nice. And because sometimes a person does say, what, is, what does this word mean? What is it to be spiritual in life? And we then look and hunt around for people who we regard as spiritual, and those generally that we regard as spiritual, of course, are the ones that, in fact, we don't know. Since <laughs> which is much safer. That the most safest people to regard as spiritual um, are, are dead. <laughs> and, and this is certainly one of the major contributions to the immense popularity of the Buddha and, uh, and Jesus and uh, Abraham and um, even Mohammed. And in, so sometimes we like to keep our spiritual awarenesses and uh, images um, certainly at a distance. Uh, uh, as a, a model and sometimes as an, um, an inspiration. Um, but I think much more importantly than having models, what does spirituality uh, mean to us? What way, what, 
what, what arises in one's heart and mind when we dwell on that? What is a meditative way of being in this world? What is wisdom and insight? What matters? In all of these considerations, the physical, as I referred to, the emotional, heart, as I referred to, the intellectual, knowledge, information, as I referred to, and in the spiritual, and the considerations of each one of those four, hopefully, you know, are something which we are <coughs> endeavouring to bring awareness to. Awareness, once again, revealed not through the thought, but through the activity, through the seeing, through the change, in the change. With spirituality, it is not unusual for the imposition of the old conditioning to take place. Old conditioning, intention, action and result as a belief system, taken off one subject, whatever we might call personal drive in life, to another which we call spirituality. The same measurements start arising once again, showing itself in the meditations, showing itself on retreats, showing itself in the pursuit of personal experiences which will change my life. And one has um, 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 lingering like a monster in Jurassic Park the concept enlightenment. <laughs> And there is a kind of um, public uh, image um, which goes with it, and it's more widespread than in the, uh, the Buddhist tradition because one had the whole uh, notion of uh, the Enlightenment uh, uh, period. Talk about mammoth deception everywhere, that's one of the great ones. And this Enlightenment becomes an idea for some which give tremendous consideration to as a kind of immediate solution to all problems in one hit. And it would have to have an immense attraction to anybody. You think one wacko, bang, and it's all over, no more problems, peace and harmony, compassion and love, and best of all, everybody's going to love me because I'm so enlightened. <laughs> And this position makes enlightenment, you know, incredibly, um, uh, 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 incredibly attractive offer. What happens again? Desire, action, and result can set in in all the ways that it does, and somehow, in all of those which I spoke about—body, emotion, thought, and uh, sp spirituality—the self and its story is continuing. It's still going on in the same way. It might be more refined and more subtle, such as when meditating, but it, something essentially hasn't changed. And the thread, the linking network that goes along with it is, I am doing this, and this is happening to me, and it's affecting me for better or worse. And if I think it's really good, I'll continue doing it, so I have to bring in time and perhaps somewhere, perhaps this week, or next week, or next month, or this lifetime, or if one is in some other tradition, Tibetan traditions, um, perhaps in a few dozen lifetimes, then at some point um, I'll get uh, the goods for all of this 
uh, investment and payout that I've done. I get some decent return for all, all these knee pains I've had to endure <laughs> for the last lifetime. So this view enters into spiritual life and practice. It's the same self in a refined way under the name spiritual, same kind of motion, same kind of movement, and the same kind of looking for something for me. And if I get something from it, then I'll continue it. And if I don't get something from it, then I'm going to stop it, because what's the point of doing it? And this backwards and forwards goes on in the life and heart and mind of many a serious meditator, many a serious student of spirituality. And therefore, there does have to be some kind of risk involved in all of this. I may or may not get what I want. I wonder whether there is a kind of calling from us in a deep spiritual sense of a calling which has to examine the whole thing all over again. That examination of it may come back to a point which I was referring to briefly uh, yesterday is this whole idea of something coming to me and me making changes in my life and me making decisions in my life may not be the truth of life. And perhaps we may in our awarenesses and bringing awarenesses to bear perhaps may have to address something which runs deeper than all of that and that might be expressed in different ways, but perhaps nothing belongs to me in the first place. So the whole idea of having something and getting something more, having something for myself and then replacing it with something else which is better in some way or other, may be a confusion to begin with. And perhaps if we take uh, another way of looking and bringing awareness to bear may alter a lot of things significantly and that being nothing belongs to me in the first place nothing ever did belong to me in the first place I am not the creator of my life I am not the creator of my destiny nor is some other self, some other I or my, or you, or whatever. And that all which is revealed in this phenomenal and diverse existence belongs to the nature. So the whole idea of getting something for me is fraught with success and failure, praise and blame, fraught with difficulty because I'm still carrying an idea of me as being the centre of things. And perhaps this is just a social fiction, and that all things, all experiences, I and my bodily life, emotional life, information life, spiritual life, or however we might describe, that all of this belongs to the nature. 
And it's not so much that I have to get something for myself, but if we're going to talk about getting or not getting, it's as though I have to give it all back. But even the idea of giving it all back, back to the nature, back into the nature of things, all which I call myself, that even the idea of doing that has some assumption in it that it's mine to give back. Can there be a genuine awakening in life, a genuine realization in life that really genuinely understands with one's being and with one's awareness and also with one's thought and being in life that I can't give it back to nature because I don't have anything in the first place to give back. The truth of life, it's all a flower of the nature, it's all an expression of the nature of things, it all belongs to the nature of things, including this whole like, notion of I and my. And that this I and my, in an extraordinary way, is not I and my. It's just born out of the nature of things. And sometimes in moments of intimacy with the nature, sometimes in the contemplative moment, or just in any unexpected thought, any unexpected emotion, or feeling, or idea, or experience, or whatever it might be, it's a, a direct statement out of the nature of things that I couldn't create this, I couldn't manufacture this, I couldn't organize this, I couldn't determine this, I couldn't affect this, it just comes out of the nature of things. And that this coming out of the nature of things is revealing to me where it all belongs. And thus the teachings remind us and say that the, in the wonder of emptiness, in the lovely and the most exquisite of all teachings of emptiness, that this emptiness makes everything possible. There is emptiness and the very proof the revelation, the indication of emptiness is that it makes all things possible, including the arising of this I and my in this world. In the whole the sting of change, or having to make change, the sting of having to make decisions, the sting of death, whatever, seems to lose its um, problematic edge. And so our way of being in the world exp is expressed in fresh ways, because we've come out of the, the deception that it belongs to me, that it's mine, it's mine to keep, mine to have, mine to secure, and that it's, there's a, a seeing which is of a different order. And one senses the truth of it the authenticity of life not belonging to me. And one can say, I have no life of my own. And one knows the, the, and senses the, through the awareness the truth of such a statement. It doesn't belong to me. And then our way of being in the world comes out of that realization. And it's a free life there. It's uh, an enlightened life, it's uh, an expansive life, it's uh, a life in which everything gives complement to it, birth and death.
May all beings see into life. May all beings see into the nature of things. May all beings be free. Let's have a couple of quiet minutes together for a moment, please. At uh, um, this time, for the next uh, a half an hour, it's a period of uh, time for some uh, uh, meditation, reflection, and as I uh, mentioned uh, yesterday, there may be some of you who just wish to sit in meditation room and to be here and now in silence and stillness and in the nature. and to use the breathing as a resource and as a reminder of the nature coming and passing through the air element. And and then in the meditation, in the awareness is there, just to see what is occurring in one's life uh, through the experience of uh, meditation and awareness. Or for uh, others, it may take the expression of a deliberate purposeful uh, reflection on some area which you are interested in making changes or decision making and if you find that you do get embroiled in it and just uh, caught up in streams and patterns of thoughts in such a way and it feels like just a repetitive or mechanical in some way then to bring in as immediately as possible the attention back to the here and now, to forget the story, forget the issue, forget the matter, to allow oneself to be as calm and as grounded as possible with the living present, and it feels a bit more relaxed and comfortable, then once again to turn one's attention purposefully to that area for some quiet reflection of what there is to be seen or learnt or changed in the relationship to that which is of concern to you. So in here some people uh, are here for that purpose. Others of you will be here with no particular thought of wanting or needing to make changes uh, in your life. They're just occurring in the process and the way of things and then just to be intimately present and familiar with that with and including as I mentioned a sense of non-possessiveness towards life. Life is unfolding, life is revealing itself, and the nature of things belongs to where, it's where it belongs. And um, after we'll have, as yesterday, uh, uh, the uh, small uh, groups um, again, different people in uh, different groups, and that's followed by a sitting period, and uh, Shada again at the end of the morning will uh, uh, speak to you as well. Okay, so th there may be sitting uh, meditations in here uh, or outside uh, walking and as much as possible in this time, of course, keeping this room as uh, quiet and silent as possible. Thank you, everybody. Thank you.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.